Epilogue, Part 1 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Epilogue, Part 1. If we could have procured, respecting the existence of Albert and Consuelo after their marriage, as faithful and minute documents as have guided us hitherto, doubtless we could still have finished a long career by relating to you their journeys and adventures. But, O oh persevering reader, we cannot satisfy you, and you, wearied reader, we ask of you only a moment's patience. Do not consider this, either of you, a reason for blame or praise as regards us. The truth is that the materials, by the aid of which we could, as until now, have united and arranged the events of this history, disappear, in a great measure, for us, from the romantic night which saw the union of our two heroes, blessed and consecrated by the Invisibles." Either the engagements entered into in the temple prevented their unbosoming themselves to friendship in their letters, or their friends, themselves initiated into the mysteries, have, in times of persecution, judged it best to destroy their correspondence, so that we no longer perceive them but through a cloud, under the veil of the temple or under the mask of adepts. If we should trust without examination to the rare traces of their existence, which appear in the manuscripts in our procession, we should often go astray in following them. For contradictory proofs show them both to us upon several geographical points at once, or following certain different directions at the same time but we can easily understand that they voluntarily gave occasion to these mistakes, being at one time devoted to some secret enterprise directed by the invisibles, and at another compelled to withdraw themselves through a thousand dangers from the inquisitorial police of governments. What we can affirm respecting the existence of that soul and two persons which was called Consuelo and Albert, is that their love kept its promises, but that fate cruelly belied those it had seemed to make to them during those hours of rapture which they called their midsummer night's dream. Still, they were not ungrateful towards Providence, which had given them that quick-passing happiness in all its plenitude, and which, in the midst of their reverses, continued in them the miracle of love announced by Wanda. Under all their misery, suffering, and persecution, they constantly recurred to that secret recollection which marked in their life, as it were a celestial vision, a pledge made with the divinity for the enjoyment of a better life, after a phase of labors, trials, and sacrifices. Everything becomes, moreover, so mysterious to us in this history that we have not even been able to discover in what part of Germany was situated that enchanted residence in which, protected by the tumult of huntings and fetes, a prince, 
anonymous in our documents, served as a point of rallying and as the principal mover to the social and philosophical conspiracy of the Invisibles. That prince received from them a symbolical name, which, after a thousand attempts to divine the cipher used by the adepts, we presume to have been that of Christophorus, Christ-bearer, or perhaps also Christotomus, golden mouth. The temple in which Consuela was married and initiated, they poetically called the Saint Grail, and the chiefs of the tribunal, the Templars. Romantic emblems renewed from the ancient legends of the golden age of chivalry. It is well known that, according to those delightful fictions, the Saint Grail was concealed in a mysterious sanctuary at the bottom of a grotto unknown to mortals. It was there that the Templars, illustrious saints of primitive Christianity, devoted in this world to immortality preserved the precious cup which Jesus had used to consecrate the miracle of the Eucharist when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. That cup doubtless contained the celestial grace, symbolized sometimes by the blood, sometimes by the tears of the Christ, a divine liquid, in fine, a Eucharistic substance, respecting the mystical nature of which there was no explanation but which it was enough to see in order to be morally and physically transformed, to be forever protected from death and sin. The pious paladins who, after formidable vows, terrible macerations, and exploits which made the earth tremble, devoted themselves to the ascetic life of knights errant, had for their ideal the discovery of the saint grail at the end of their peregrinations. They sought it under the ices of the north, upon the shores of Amorica, in the depths of the forests of Germany. It was necessary, in order to realize this sublime conquest, to brave perils analogous to those of the Garden of the Hesperides, to overcome monsters, elements, barbarous nations, hunger, thirst, even death. Some few of these Christian Argonauts discovered, it is said, the sanctuary, and were regenerated by the divine cup. But they never betrayed the terrible secret. Their triumph was known by the strength of their arm, by the holiness of their life, by their invincible weapons, by the transfiguration of their whole being. But they survived only a short time among us, so glorious in initiation, they disappeared from among men, as did Jesus after his resurrection, and passed from earth to heaven without undergoing the bitter transition of death. Such was the magic symbol which in reality was very well adapted to the work of the Invisibles. During several years, the new Templars retained the hope of rendering their Saint Grail accessible to all men. Albert labored efficaciously without doubt to propagate the fundamental ideas of the doctrine. He attained to the highest degrees of the order, for we have seen in some place the list of his titles which would prove that he had time enough to reach them. It is well known that 81 months are necessary to rise only to the 31st degree of masonry, 
and we are certain that a much longer time was required to pass afterwards the unlimited number of the mysterious degrees of the Saint Grail. The names of the Masonic grades are no longer a mystery to anyone, but it would not perhaps be unsatisfactory here to recall some of them, for they depict quite well the enthusiastic genius and the fertile imagination which presided over their successive creation. Apprentice, journeyman, and master mason, secret master and perfect master, secretary, provost, and judge, English master and Irish master, master in Israel, elect master of the nine and the fifteen, elect of the unknown, sublime elect knight, Grand Master Architect, Royal Arch, Grand Scotchman of the Sacred Lodge or Sublime Mason, Knight of the Sword, Knight of the East, Prince of Jerusalem, Knight of the East and the West, Rose Cross of France, of Herodon and Kilwinning, Grand Pontiff or Sublime Scotchman, Architect of the Sacred Vault, Pontiff of the Celestial Jerusalem. Sovereign Prince of Masonry or Master Ad Vitam, Neokite, Prince of Lebanon, Chief of the Tabernacle, Knight of the Brazen Serpent, Trinitary Scotchman or Prince of Mercy, Grand Commander of the Temple, Knight of the Sun, Patriarch of the Crusades, Grand Master of the Light, Knight Kadosh, Knight of the White and Black Eagle, Knight of the Phoenix, Knight of the Iris, Knight of the Argonauts, Knight of the Golden Fleece, Grand Inspector Inquisitor Commander, Sublime Prince of the Royal Secret, Sublime Master of the Luminous Ring, etc., etc. Footnote. Several of these grades are of different creations and different rites. Some are perhaps posterior to the epic of which we write. We refer the correction to learned tilers. There have been, I believe, more than a hundred grades in certain rites. With these titles, or at least the greater portion of them, we find others less known, attached to the name of Albert Protobrad, in a cipher less readable than that of the Freemasons, such as Knight of St. John, Sublime Joanite, Master of the New Apocalypse, Doctor of the Eternal Gospel, Elect of the Holy Ghost, Templar, Areopagite, Magus, Man-People, Man-Pontiff, Man-King, New Man, etc. We were surprised at seeing here some titles which appear to have been borrowed in anticipation from the Illuminism of Weishaupt. But this peculiarity was explained to us afterwards, and will require no comment for our readers at the conclusion of this history. Through the labyrinth of obscure but profound facts which relate to the labors, to the success, to the dispersion and apparent extinction of the invisibles, we have had much difficulty in following at a distance the adventurous star of our young couple. Still, by supplying with a prudent commentary what is wanting, the following is nearly an historical abridgment of the principal events of their life. The reader's imagination will assist the recital, and for ourselves, 
We do not doubt that the best denouements will be those which the reader will be pleased to construct for himself in place of the narrator. Footnote. For this reason, the history of John Chrysler appears to us Hoffman's most wonderful romance, death having surprised the author before the termination of his work. The poem ends to different imaginations in a thousand different forms, each more fantastic than the other. It is thus that a beautiful river ramifies towards its mouth and is lost in a thousand capricious streams among the golden sands of the seashore. It is probable that it was on leaving the St. Grail that Consuelo went to the little court of Berith, where the Margravine, Frederick's sister, had palaces, gardens, kiosks, and cascades in the style of those of Count Hoditz at Rosewald, though less sumptuous and less expensive, for that witty princess had been married without dowry to a very poor prince, and it was not long since she had had dresses, the train of which was reasonable, and pages whose doublets did not always display embroidery. Her gardens, or rather her garden, to speak without metaphor, was situated in an admirable country, and she there allowed herself the pleasure of an Italian opera in an antique temple, somewhat of the Pompadour style. The Margravine was quite philosophical, that is to say, Voltairean. The young hereditary Margrave, her husband, was the zealous chief of Masonic Lodge. I do not know if Albert had any relation with him, and if his incognito was protected by the secret of the brothers, or if indeed he remained away from the court in order to rejoin his wife somewhat later. Doubtless Consuelo had there some secret mission, perhaps also to avoid drawing upon her husband the attention which was everywhere fixed upon herself. She did not live openly with him in the earlier days of their union. Their love had then doubtless all the attraction of mystery, and if the publicity of their union, consecrated by the fraternal sanction of the Templars, had appeared to them sweet and vivifying, the secrecy with which they were surrounded in a hypocritical and licentious world was to them, in the beginning, a necessary aegis and a sort of mute protestation, from which they derived enthusiasm and strength. Many Italian singers at that period charmed the little court of Barith. Carilla and Anzaletto appeared there and the inconsistent prima donna burned with fresh fires for the traitor whom she had formerly devoted to all the furies of hell. But Anzaletto, while he conjoled the tigress, endeavored prudently and with a mysterious reserve to find grace in the eyes of Consuelo, whose talent, increased by so many secret and profound revelations, eclipsed all rivalry. Ambition had become the dominant passion of the young tenor. Love had been stifled by disdain, even pleasure by satiety. He therefore loved neither the chaste Consuelo nor the fiery Carilla. But he kept fair with both, quite ready to attach himself outwardly to that one of the two who would take him in her suite and assist him to make himself known advantageously. 
Consuelo testified for him a peaceful friendship and did not spare good advice and conscientious lessons which might give an impulse to his talent. But she no longer felt any trouble by his side, and the gentleness of forgiveness revealed to her the absolute confirmation of her freedom. Anzaletto did not deceive himself in that respect. After having listened with profit to the teachings of the artist and appeared to hear with emotion the advice of the friend, he lost patience in losing hope, and his deep rancor, his bitter spite, displayed themselves unintentionally in his behavior and his words. In the meanwhile, it appears that the young Baroness Amelia de Rudolstadt arrived at the court of Berith with the Princess de Combach, daughter of the Countess Hoditz. If we are to believe some indiscreet or exaggerating witnesses, very strange little dramas then took place between these four persons, Consuelo, Amelia, Carilla, and Anzaletto. On seeing the handsome tenor appear unexpectedly upon the stage of the opera at Berith, the young baroness fainted. No one thought of remarking the coincidence, but Carilla's lynx eyes had caught upon the brow of the tenor a peculiar expression of satisfied vanity. He had failed in his passage of effect. The court, absorbed by the indisposition of the young baroness, had not encouraged the singer, and instead of cursing between his teeth, as he always did in such cases, he had upon his lips a smile of triumph, which was by no means equivocal. Here, said Carilla in a stifled voice to Consuelo, as she re-entered the wing, it is neither you nor me whom he loves. It is that little fool who has just made a scene for him. Do you know her? Who is she? I do not know, replied Consuelo, who had remarked nothing, but I can assure you that he thinks neither of her, nor of you, nor of me. Of whom, then, in that case? Himself, Al Salito, replied Consuelo with a smile. The chronicle adds that the next morning Consuelo was called into a retired grove of the residence to converse with the Baroness Amelia, pretty much as follows. I know all, said the latter with an irritated air, before allowing Consuelo to open her mouth. It is you whom he loves. It is you, unhappy scourge of my life, who have deprived me of Albert's heart and of his. His, madam? I do not know. Do not dissemble. Anzaletto loves you. You are his mistress. You were so at Venice, you are so still. It is an infamous calumny, or a supposition unworthy of you, madam. It is the truth, I tell you. He confessed it to me last night. Last night? Oh, madam, what do you tell me, cried Consuelo, blushing with shame and sorrow. Amelia burst into tears, and when the good Consuelo had succeeded in calming her jealousy, she became, in spite of herself, the confidant of that unhappy passion. Amelia had seen Anzaletto sing upon the stage at Prague. She had been intoxicated by his beauty and his success. Understanding nothing of music, she had unhesitatingly taken him for the first singer in the world especially as he had a remarkable success at Prague. She had sent for him as a master of singing, 
and while her poor father, old Baron Frederick, paralyzed by inaction, slept in his armchair, dreaming of hounds in fury and wild boars at bay, she had fallen a victim to seduction. Ennui and vanity had impelled her to her ruin. In Zoletto, flattered by this illustrious conquest, and wishing to make himself notorious by a scandal, had persuaded her that she had the material to become the greatest cantatrice of the age, that an artist's life was paradise upon earth, and that she could do nothing better than run away with him in order to make her debut at Haymarket in Handel's operas. Amelia had at first rejected with horror the idea of abandoning her old father. But at the moment when Anzaletto left Prague, pretending a despair which he did not experience, she had yielded to a kind of vertigo. She had fled with him. Her intoxication had not been of long duration. Anzaletto's insolence and the brutality of his manners, when he no longer played the character of seducer, had restored her to herself. It was therefore with the kind of joy that, three months after her flight, she had been arrested at Hamburg and reconducted to Prussia, where, at the request of the Rudolstadts of Saxony, she had been mysteriously incarcerated at Spandau. But the penance had been too long and too severe. Amelia had become disgusted with repentance as speedily as with passion. She had sighed for liberty, the comforts of life and the consideration of her rank, of which she had been so suddenly and so cruelly deprived. In the midst of her personal sufferings, she had hardly felt sorrow at the loss of her father. On learning that she was free, she had at last comprehended all the misfortunes which had befallen her family. But not daring to return to the canoness, and fearing the bitter ennui of a life of reprimands and lectures, she had implored the protection of the Margravine of Berith, and the Princess de Combac, then at Dresden, had undertaken to conduct her to her relative. In that philosophical and frivolous court she found the amiable tolerance, which fashionable vices then made the only virtue of the future. But on again seeing Anzaletto, she at once experienced the diabolical ascendancy which he knew how to exercise upon women, and against which the chaste consuel herself had so many struggles to sustain. Fear and sorrow had at first struck her to the heart, but after her fainting fit, having gone alone by night into the gardens to take the air, she had met him, emboldened by her emotion and his imagination excited by the obstacles which had arisen between them. Now she again loved him. She blushed at it. She was terrified at it, and she confessed her faults to her former music mistress with a mixture of feminine modesty and a philosophical cynicism. It appears certain that Consuelo knew how to find the road to her heart by fervent exhortations, and that she induced her to return to Giant's Castle in order there, in retreat, to extinguish her dangerous passion and to watch over the declining days of her aged aunt. After this adventure, Berith was no longer an endurable abode for Consuelo. The stormy jealousy of Carilla, who, always foolish and always good at heart, accused her with grossness and threw herself at her feet a moment afterwards, 
singularly wearied her. On his side, Anzaletto, who had imagined he could avenge himself for her disdain by feigning passion for Amelia, did not forgive her for having withdrawn the young baroness from danger. He played her a thousand bad turns, such as to make her miss all her entrances upon the stage, to take means in the midst of a duo to confuse her, and by his own aplomb to cause an ignorant public to believe that it was she who was in fault. If she had a scene to play with him, he went to the right instead of going to the left, tried to make her fall, or compelled her to entangle herself among the supernumeraries. These wicked tricks failed before Consuelo's calmness and presence of mind, but she was less stoical when she perceived that he spread the most unworthy calumnies respecting her and that he was listened to by those idle great lords in whose eyes a virtuous actress was a phenomenon the existence of which they could not admit, or which it was at least too fatiguing to respect. She saw libertines of every age and every rank become bold with her, and refusing to believe in the sincerity of her resistance, unite with Anzaletto in defaming and dishonoring her from a feeling of cowardly vengeance and ferocious spite. End of Epilogue, Part 1